This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a play this week. I watched a movie. We are covering Judy Garland and the end of the rainbow. End of the rainbow. It's a play. My God, we're doing a play. Yeah. How interesting. We're doing it because the film Judy is coming out. It, it came out. It came out. I saw it <laughs> just now. God. Evan just saw it, and I, I gave him no it. time to process yeah, his I'm like, experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, I, uh, I came from the theater, and now we're recording. I'm still in the theater. Hello, Taylor. <laughs> no, we're doing, uh, we're doing Judy. It was lovely. I just have a warm feeling in my heart. I'm sad, but I'm warm. And, and like most things we end up doing, we knew nothing about Judy Garland, but we were interested in the movie. Lo and behold, it's based on something. <laughs> How about that? It's not an original screenplay. Yeah. It's based on a play. And then also where you might know Judy Garland from is The Wizard of Oz. Ding, 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 ding. Which is a very famous book that came out in 1900 and is a children's classic and maybe the first official American fairy tale. Mm. So we're going to talk about all that kind of stuff. We're going to talk about biopics. We're going to talk about her life and her influence oh, and Judy. all the works that are associated with that literarily and otherwise. And you should probably go see the movie. My body's ready. Evan. Yes, please. Yeah, if you're interested and if, and if and by the end of the show, if you want more, man, check out the movie. That was cool. Yeah. So Judy Garland, just a quote from her, one of her children it said, by the time my mother was 37, she had made 39 movies. She had done over 500 radio shows and over 1,200 concerts. That's kind of her life. She died young of an accidental overdose at age 49. Those stats are crazy. Or 47, yeah. They yeah. say throughout, she says throughout the film, she's been on stage since he was two years old. Mm -hmm. and, and sad the way they present it because it's, it's a joke. It's not. <laughs> it's a joke. She keeps it is a joke. She, it is a joke she goes to. It's whenever you know, I've been on stage when I was two years. But it's not. It's not a joke. Yeah, she lived a freakish freak. I mean, a lot of people compare her to like these Disney Channel stars or Michael Jackson as like your upbringing was unnatural and freakish. You were on you were a performing yeah. monster from the beginning. This uh shows some some portraits of her young life interspersed with her for their life later on, but the, the the younger parts really are only about almost how MGM manufactured mm -hmm. her childhood, which I think is going to be shocking to a lot of people. I mean, because if I'm to believe anything, you know, <laughs> in the film is even close to true, my God, MGM yeah. was running a like this was craziness. Yeah, she was born Frances Ethel Gum. In 1922 in Minnesota, obviously that's not what she went by. So that's even the start of her life is like, oh, yeah, you're manufactured. Your name, something different. <laughs> like, doesn't sell. Here's your name. You're Judy Garland. Uh, there's, a, there's a rough moment when they pull that mm -hmm. whole thing out. The studio head pulls all, like, the horrid facts of her life out real quick right in front of her. It's like, you want to go back? No, I didn't think so. Yeah. To a child. You're like, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. Somebody help her. Somebody help her right now. Somebody ask her if she's okay. Yeah, that's that'll be the constant threat is like not having an awareness of yeah. what's happening. So she she starts out in Minnesota. They move to California after her father, and this is another thing that will come up throughout her life is sexuality, mm -hmm. homosexuality, bisexuality, mm -hmm. these mm -hmm. kind of things. So her father was accused and rumored and all these things that he had made advances toward young men, and so they had to move. And so he, asked to leave. Yeah. 
he died early on in life. So then it was just with her mother. And then this is like the dance mom's thing where her mom just pushed mm. her and pushed her sisters. And so they were part of the gum sisters, which is like a vaudeville act. And her, she, she blames her mother as giving her pills even before she was 10 years old. Oh Would give her uppers before to oh keep her God. blasting through on the stage and then downers at night to have them go to sleep and then... So it was like she was already hooked into Jeez. the drug scene from her mother as a kid. Pills as a switch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On off. On off for a child, yeah. Ugh. Over and over again. And then so she got signed with MGM at age 13. But this is also the time with Ava Gardner and Elizabeth Taylor and these very sultry, thin, older, you know, sex icon models. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, wh- why do we hire her? What are we going to do with a 13-year-old who – is not chubby, but by their standards is chubby mm. and isn't old enough to be a leading woman and isn't young enough to be Shirley Temple, the child star. So they just got her in on the system in a weird middle ground. L.B. Mayer called her his little hunchback and like they constantly made fun of her weight. And this is definitely God. in the film, you know, had her on diets and yep. gave her prosthetic nose replacements and caps on her teeth and all oh sorts God. of. They didn't have anything about that. The nose stuff and the teeth cap. Yeah. Like, oh my yeah. Gosh. Yeah. So that is like her childhood life. And she's acting in a ton of stuff. You know, like we said, she appeared in over 39 films, but she's known for her performance as a 17-year-old in The Wizard of Oz, which came out in 1939. There was, I saw one person, which I don't know if they put this in the movie, but it was interesting to me. Dottie Ponadel was a makeup artist. Judy Garland was in a movie called Meet Me in St. Louis at 21 years old, and she was the makeup artist who was like, you don't need the extra makeup stuff. You don't need the teeth caps. You don't need the nose stuff. Like, you're beautiful. And this woman ended up becoming the makeup artist for the rest of Judy Garland's time at MGM. Aww. So that was like Aww. in the history books of, of relationships of having somebody who cared Someone about her. Someone said something. And said, hey, don't put up with this, yeah. at least in, in the realm that I can control, which is yeah. how you look. You don't need all this stuff. So I'm going to do this for you, which I thought was interesting. That's interesting. And, and throughout the film, they illustrate how how oddly it was really fans that were the only people who were nice by the end. You know, by, by, the, by the time she was in her 40s, like it was just the polite exchanges that she had with people. And uh, how sad that the relegated to the, you know, small, the small in-between moments. Like it, it, was the, yeah. it was this lady at MGM just like, you don't need this stuff. Like how, the, how many people are whispering in this girl's ear? The only thing that was real about Judy is, yeah. is the proportion of Judy Garland, which is that hour a night, the, the show, yeah. the movie. There's like, no. Yeah. God, was, and she just nothing. gets lost in all of it. Yeah. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to it. So, Towards the end of her life, there was a book that never got written that they wanted her to do a a memoir, autobiography kind of thing. And she was missing deadlines and they were like – it was just a total nightmare. So the person who was in charge was supposed to be manning this project was just like, hey, I'm going to just give you a tape recorder and like just say anything and we'll like turn it into something. Like we don't have time for this. So these tapes were released recently, I guess. And they're on YouTube. Oh, great. I I wish – 
I don't know how copyright works, so I, I'm not going to yeah. play it on the podcast, but go to into, into our show notes and click the one for the tapes of her book because she's, I mean, in some of them, she's like slurring and clearly drunken and in another one, she's more lucid, but it's like, you can tell, like you said, later in her life, this is like a couple years before she died. She is completely on fire for being like, I'm mad. I have a right to be mad. Yeah. I don't know who Judy Garland is. Yeah. Like, if you want to like, get think that about side that. of her. Yeah. Just yelling into the abyss with into a, a tape, tape recorder, recorder of something that will never be made. It's insane. I don't know who Judy Garland is. Like, yeah, you know, that's what it I is. I wish that was in the movie. But like that, that's in, that's imagine that. And like she, that's the real deal thing. That is her on tape. Yeah. I'm wondering if it's taken this long to tell this story, which is really the story of Judy Garland, to as to not look like uh, some. Uh, profiteering off of her yet again, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, you know, like, why... I, I, the more I learn about her, and, and now having seen the film, I'm like, why has this not been done already? It's not like people don't still love her, if you know yeah. the Wizard of Oz or anything. You know, like, yeah. So I, this would have been hot in the 90s. <laughs> you know, I can so imagine, I can tell that, you, you know, like, yeah. so it, I'm amazed that this has not gotten done that, the, and even that the play that we're, that we're, yeah. that we're, we're technically, you know, doing this on, it wasn't done until the 2000s. Well, I'll tell you a little bit of, of history of things that are made about her. Yeah. As far as movies and television and whatnot, there was an HBO miniseries that was four hours that came out in 2001 and it got a ton of awards and it was known for like, one for one recreating her performances, dubbing everything over with her actual songs and everything. Oh. And it was based on a book called Life with Judy Garland, Me and My Shadows. And that was written by one of her daughters. Oh, okay. Uh, who, who had that the, the experience. So that came out in 2001. Thank and God. then there was a book. It was a, who, it was a show? HBO miniseries. HBO, okay. Yeah, yeah, hey, yeah. Okay. So that, if Good. you're interested in like Good. the full range of her life from birth to death. I wasn't aware of that. That kind of did that, yeah. And then there, the, the book the that I- The full range of her life? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Everything. Okay. And then there's a book that's kind of like- the main, you know, biography yeah, yeah. of her life, and it's called Get Happy. And so that was optioned, and Anne Hathaway was going to play Judy Garland. And this mm. was happening in 2009. But, of course, the inimitable Harvey Weinstein was the guy behind this, and so clearly that did not happen, and it's not getting made. Well, thank God it didn't go well for him. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so that was, those were the big projects that were in relation to her, but also it's like, like you said, it's like, yeah, are we going to make another thing? That's saying how great yeah. she was and make money off of her and not that's what point I'm fingers like, at what a terrible, what, what like, a terrible system that created her was. Yeah, studios being like, I don't know if I really want to be bad with all this blood money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, something that did come from this. So, like we said, she was at MGM and then they dropped her after 14 years because she was falling down the rabbit hole of drugs and not showing up and being derelict and causing problems and other actresses who are new on the scene, always fresh blood, are getting the parts that she's not showing up for and whatnot. So they just removed her, they ended her contract. Judy, you're acting crazy. Judy, you're acting like you've been fed pills your entire life. What's wrong? Yeah. Good Lord, what are these conversations? So, Judy, yeah. what? Get, get a hold of yourself. I don't understand how you here, can be here, like Here, but here, take this. these pills to get a hold of yourself. So, you're there was acting a, yeah. crazy. That's <laughs> There was a Hail Mary pass in terms of a movie that she was in in 1954, and it's called A Star is Born, and they just remade it with Lady Gaga oh, yeah. and Bradley's Coopers. And, <laughs> uh, 
it did well critically, but not commercially. Really? And I think it's interesting that her life parallels more, if anybody's seen A Star is Born, like the guy's journey of the singer who deals with addiction and failure and everything while the girl. And then they remade right. it in 76 with Barbara Streisand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they have the more recent one in 2018. But it's interesting that she played the woman who is like the rising ascending right. star in music. And the guy is the one that's crumbling and falling apart because of drugs and alcohol. God. So even in... What would be the closest piece of popular media about the artist struggle was still a contortion of the straight white male's experience of it. Right. Cool. Uh, <laughs> and the world that she lived in yeah. <laughs> is not being presented. Or Fantastic. she's playing the opposite. Yeah, 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 yeah. So even if she's a part of something that would be t- touching on something, you know. She's playing the contrived life. version. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. It's still a horrid it's contortion. Yeah. But like I said, that did not do well. So then she goes into and she does live singing after that. And again, is very, very successful. She was the first woman to win the Grammy for Album of the Year. Whoa. She won that in 1961. The album was called Judy at Carnegie Hall. It's a live performance. Like I said, one of the best albums of all time. People said that was an insane performance, that live performance at Carnegie Hall. And then, so she came out with eight studio albums. And then she got into TV after that. And there was a show called The Judy Garland Show, which only lasted for a year. And then they canned it because it was at the same time as some other show on a different network that was more popular. I think uh, much of it is on YouTube, actually. Mm -hmm. It is. Yeah, I'll post a link again. Renee Zellwinger said that that she downed it. (laughs) She just just full blasted. I think it's it's, 23 or 26 episodes and it's only one season they only did it for one year but it is it is i'll post a link to a particular one on youtube that has uh, barbara streisand mm. and uh, i think ethel merman in it and it's 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 like barb and ethel <laughs> it's a full broadway production getting in the mix every every episode it's like insane like how no wonder this was so crazy did to they pull do off. sketches Oh, I hope it's, music a, I bet it's and, a ton of fun. I've seen yeah. I've seen only the smallest of, of snippets from it, but I've never sat down and watched a whole episode. But maybe I'll go to sleep to one tonight <laughs> <laughs> and learn about. It. Yeah, the the other thing I don't know if you'll be able to go to sleep to this, but apparently she had a relationship with John F. Kennedy and uh-huh. would talk to him on the phone frequently, like on a weekly or biweekly basis. That's awesome. And so when he died. Got assassinated. It was very, very heart wrenching to her, and she did something unprecedented for on her show, which is like the networks did not want anybody to bring this up anymore. It was kind of like we have to move on. Mm-hmm. We're not going to talk mm-hmm. about this. But she was like, "All right." And I'm going to post a link to this because this was very emotionally impactful. If you don't know anything about her, if you never watch anything, I would say watch this mm. performance because you can watch a million different of her like singing, and everybody's okay. like, "Oh, her live performances, her singing." I'll post a link. She sings this the Battle Hymn of the Republic. The glory, yeah, glory, yeah. Holly, that in she's like this is in honor of John F. Kennedy on her live oh. show. You can just see all the emotion in her in oh. the like five hundred by five hundred black and white pixeled thing oh. of her singing that song and her her stage performance. You get a huge sense of it in that she's like kind of awkward but also kind of powerful yeah. at the same time, and she doesn't make the most d- dramatic or choreographed movements. But you can tell that, like, when she's, you know, she's filled with so much emotion in her singing yeah. that it feels powerful and natural, even though it looks like because she's not acting or trying to be in that particular moment of singing. That's of, why she was yeah. such an impactful performer, man. Yeah. I mean, she's so yeah. real. Yeah. In spite, it's just wild in spite of all that. She, yeah. It's yeah. the only, it, wow, what a amazing, horrible 
puzzle of a person than mm-hmm. GM created. Yeah. <laughs> that the only time that she actually, wow, how amazing. The only time she actually got to express and be heard was when she was performing, which is still behind other people's words and other people's music. And and the only thing that people know about her. It's yeah, a parasocial so. relationship. You look up there and you're like, oh, that's Judy Garland. And she's like, I don't even know who I am. Uh, because that's all people know me. And then when I get off, I'm this monster. And nobody was created that, you know, to be that thing. Yeah. And everybody wants me to stop doing the pills and whatever, but that's the only way that I can do the thing that people recognize that's me. But even that's not me. So in, in all of that, now she's done all of this singing and whatever, and, and her career is going down and it's on the ropes again. And she does, and this is where the movie comes in and the play that I read comes in, is this mm-hmm. is the final sort of months and moments of her life where she does this tour in England and then she dies in 1969 at age 47 in England in a hotel room of an overdose. And so that is, is kind of the story in her life and whatnot. Sorry for being a downer audience, but it's a, I don't know, it's kind of like a modern tragedy. Yeah. Or a bittersweet. Yeah, I mean, how odd that she is ca- encapsulated in in something so, you know, as far as culture goes, monumentous, uh, art-wise, you know, in yeah. cinema, that she is stuck forever in time in the Wizard of Oz. Right. It's ghostly almost. It's, 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 there's such a dichotomy of, of her. It's like a funhouse mirror of her life. Yeah. It is such a bizarre, I mean, it is like looking into the land of Oz. Well, it's, yeah, she is a girl who is from nowhere, plucked and transported to this technicolor world and trying to figure out how to, Save everybody. Uh, so as far as The Wizard of Oz is concerned, Shirley Temple and Deanna Durbin, who were these other actresses who were younger, were cast first. They had complications. So this is how she got the part, just through a fluke. Uh, but again, she's older than them. She's not the young, demure girl. She's like this weird, awkward middle schooler. Mm-hmm. So they try to make her look younger. And then that's where a lot of the weight problems come in because they're like, you can't eat and you got to do this and you got to wear tight corsets and you got to put your hair this way to look younger and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so already, because like I said, she's 17 doing this, but she's supposed to look like a kid. But the book came out in 1900. And then Interestingly, in terms of the the lineage of how these things get adapted, Frank Baum loved theater and was all into theater, the author of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And he... A theater man, eh? A theater man. So he want, <laughs> it got turned into a Broadway adaptation in 1902. And then the movie came out in 39. The Broadway version, though, is very different. They replaced Toto with a cow named Imogene. Gross, there's weird. A, yeah, there's explicit like references that. to what was going on in modern times. So they reference directly Teddy Roosevelt and John D. Rockefeller and the oil industry and like oh, all this we, wacky whoa. stuff. <laughs> okay. It's not a children's fairy tale. They adult it up quite a bit. For and the not audience, in the good way, <laughs> right? <laughs> and a lot of strange allusions. Um, but why the book? Odd would, metaphor. Yeah, really yeah. esoteric. No, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no, it's directly like this is about politics. <laughs> the most over. Yeah, we didn't want that anyway. But why the book was so important was because he combined the conventional features of a fairy tale, witches and wizards, and all that, with. The well-known things in Reader and in America's life at the time, which was scarecrows and cornfields mm-hmm. in Kansas, and like that had hadn't really ever been done before to that degree. So everybody ate it up. Kids loved it. it. Was a huge selling book. 
the film was nominated for six Academy Awards, but lost to Gone with the Wind, like we talked about in our same goal, director, in our same year, same ridiculous. director, same year. Yeah. So that's kind of how the Wizard of Oz fits in. But what I thought was interesting, not necessarily in regards to the Wizard of Oz, but was Frank Baum, the writer. And I didn't realize how much there was, like I said, like these interwoven connections and these multi-layered things. Like she was in A Star is Born, which is about right. this oh, actress. God, another you know, one. That kind of thing. So it's like Frank Baum, who wrote Wizard of Oz, did put in quite a bit of pro-women's movement stuff and pr- and potentially allusions to bisexuality hmm. and oh. gender identity and things like that. So he, yeah, so his uh, he worked with women's suffrage movements. He was he was like the president of the club where he was in South Dakota. He, like Susan B. Anthony stayed with him for a time <laughs> at his house. Like he was in on that scene. You wow! Know, in the time when this is hit. happening. <laughs> So in the second book, The Marvelous Land of Oz, there's this general who's a woman who leads the girls and women of Oz in a revolt, and they succeed in making the men do the household chores, and uh, a female heir is placed on the throne in the second book, which is directly kind of relating to what he's doing. And obviously everybody is – it's interesting – like I would be remiss if I mentioned – Look at him go. He also has – not everybody's perfect. He has a blatant racism in other essays and things against Native Americans and believes that they're a scourge and should be wiped out. So it's like – Can't win them all. Balance. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to confuse our readers and be like, "Oh yeah, he's this great guy who you know was he's all an awesome dude." But he it's also interesting. hated these people. Yeah, he loved. Yeah, and some of the stuff that comes in in regards to his these other more modern references that he mm-hmm. has in the second book, when Dorothy asks the Scarecrow which way to go on the yellow brick road, he says, "Of course, some people go both ways." Mm-hmm. There's like you know. If you're an author, you're I'd trying to, really... to put stuff like that, yeah. and then in in further in the books, <laughs> there's this princess named Ozma who is still as an infant. She's the baby daughter of the former king, and she's given to this witch in the north. And the witch transforms her into a boy and names him Tip, in order to prevent them from being the rightful ruler of Oz. And so she spends her entire life as a boy and has no memory of ever being a girl was strange for the time to have that be a narrative device. But one could say that is one of the first transgender characters in How literature. Weird. And okay. uh, Yeah. And so I looked this up a little bit further, and there was a show that only ran for one season in 2017 on NBC what? called no Emerald City. And this character is the main character of Whoa. that show. Yeah. Oh, oh, I think I remember that. Yeah. That's hilarious. It would be a sitcom on NBC. <laughs> that runs for one season and people are like, this is weird. I'm like, yeah. I wish I was in that pitch meeting. Yeah. It's just, it's it's very interesting. And and uh, in another, just a last little thing. In the second book, there's some guy talking to Dorothy and their traveling companions. And he says, you have some queer friends, Dorothy. And she replies, the queerness doesn't matter so long as they're friends. Boom. And that was still an illusion at the, I mean, those, that phraseology at the time. Sure. So that kind of stuff was interesting to me how he, how, because I Judy Garland is recognized now as a, a gay icon. Gay and, icon. And a, and a, yeah, yeah. I think the last 30 years that has really ascended in, I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon, but mm-hmm. I've never quite understood it, but now I think I'm beginning to. Yeah. There was a phrase that was popular and started around World War II because it was illegal to be gay. Hmm. And so in the military especially, so the phrase was, are you a friend of Dorothy? And that was used as as a code to figure out who was gay Uh, in the army. 
in the early 1980s, the, the Naval Investigative Service caught oh, wind clever. of this in Chicago, and there were agents that discovered that gay men referred to themselves as friends of Dorothy. And so they didn't understand the historical meaning of the term. So this is completely true. They believed that there was an actual woman named Dorothy in Chicago who was like the ringleader of <laughs> homosexual military personnel. So they launched an enormous this investigation. This is a great movie. Yeah, to find this elusive Dorothy character to reveal the names of the gay men in the military oh my in that God. area. And of course, they came up with nothing because they're like, yeah, it's, That's it's hilarious. Code. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> That's beautiful. I mean, <sighs> yeah, more modern, like you said, as far as people identifying with her plight and why she has become a representative for that. She did have weird, a lot yeah. of gay friends and was unapologetic in hanging out with them and, and involving them in her life and whatnot. There's a, a, a big scene in the, in the, I think it's after the opening night of mm -hmm. her first show in London. She said goodbye to her assistant. And now she's alone. She exits the door, and there are two men waiting on her who are fans. And she goes up. She has a very polite, you know, fan conversation she's had a thousand times. And then there's a moment of silence. And then she asks if they'd want to go to dinner. And then there's another moment of silence <laughs> because they cannot believe that she just asked them that. Yeah. So. They have an incredible night together. It's that they're a gay couple that have just been massive fans of her, mm -hmm. and they take her around the city and can't find an open restaurant. And then they eventually just take her home and try to make her an omelet, which goes hard. But they have, just have mm -hmm. a great night staying up and talking about their lives and the the couple's uh, plight. Super interesting, and you and you get such a great glimpse of her. Her love, like there, yeah. there's so much inside her reaching out, and she, they illustrate her wanting to connect, feeling, really feeling, being there. So, a beautiful um, part of the film. I almost felt like I was hanging out with her <laughs> for just a moment. Yeah, like it was, it, and it was just hanging out as people they made her feel so alive and this is also in particular moments that i felt more of renee's uh, mm -hmm. you know more personal touches um mm -hmm. so that really just brought her whole being together in mm -hmm. the scene and showed exactly what she meant for people some people yeah even while she was still alive it's interesting that like we talked about with the layers because renee zellweger who is the actress playing Judy Garland, took a break in 2010 for six years from acting in, in regards to her depression. And she was just like, I got to get out of this. And interesting that she is playing in a biopic, Judy Garland, somebody who we wish could have had somebody behind her, yeah. allowing her to do that and not just being so taut as a string pulled from both ends until she snapped. Yeah, And there, I'll post a link. She wrote an article... Renee did in the Huffington Post because she came to some event like five years after I know, gee, she yeah, hadn't this, done anything. And then immediately people were like, oh, has she gotten plastic surgery? She looks weird. And she was like, really? This is how we're going to deal with this? Like, it does it, first of all, if I did, it doesn't matter to you. Second of all, this is the thing that major news outlets are covering. Third of all, can we not be better about like anything to do with how people look at all, let alone like, wondering where I was, let's leave the news for the actual news. Yeah, it's like, what are, 
if like really letting a pause go and they're what are you doing? Selma Hayek said in this in this thing, she was like, the rose doesn't bloom all year unless it's plastic. <laughs> and that's what she realized. She was like, I just need time. She was like, my depression was fine after a year of being out, but I was just like, I just need time to figure yeah. out what in the world I'm doing and just be me and not be Renee Zellweger, the actress who everybody thinks is somebody. Yeah. And probably that also helped her in, in, in this role. Oh, certainly. I mean, uh, she understands I, I think it completely. She's primed for it, man. Mm -hmm. The more I think about it, the more I'm just going, man, I would have never thought. Uh, Judy Garland biopic, Renee Zellweger, of course. Yeah. You know, I just, I don't know. I, I it would have never occurred to me, but how perfect, how incredibly perfect. I'm so thankful almost that, that it came together in, in this way. Mm -hmm. um, so I can talk about where this yeah. movie comes from then, because I read the play. Please, please. Which certainly please. nobody has ever read and will ever read. <laughs> will ever read the play. You probably like, well, I, I wonder if it'll get some, like, if it'll get A revitalization. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is off-Broadway now. So it started out 2005 in Australia. It's by Peter Quilter. And he also did the play slash musical called Glorious, which got turned into the movie Florence Foster Jenkins about the oh. soap opera, yeah, who, which Meryl Streep did in 2016 and won Best yeah, Actress. Yeah. I didn't see that, but um, yeah. So this is the guy that wrote the play that that movie's based off Good of. Good Lord. And then now he wrote the play that this movie is based off of, of a similar vein. Just a writing fiend. Yeah. <laughs> Just a play writing biopic and fiend. Yeah, he's done so many. He's done so many plays and, and, and musicals. So this opened on Broadway in 2012, did 176 shows, and now it's off Broadway. Hmm. It is only, like we said, the last little portion of her life before she overdoses. It's at that time frame mm -hmm. in London. And there are no flashbacks like in the movie. It's just purely like in her hotel room, doing performances, back to her hotel room, back to performances. And there's only four actors in the whole play. It's her, wow. her husband, at the, her last husband at the time who just had known her for a little while. And then they only got married for three months uh, before she died. And then... This is a fictional character in the play, but it's like a representative of mm -hmm. characters in her life. So it's a, a piano accompanist who is gay and has mm. been with her mm. through all of this. And so he knows and oh, sees okay. what she's doing as opposed to her new husband who's like trying to help her in certain ways. And he's like, no, 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 you've just got to like hide this stuff. No, 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 you just have to like pay for it. Don't let her tell people that she has the money. Like she doesn't have the money. You know, mm. that kind of thing. Okay. And so he, in a way, tries to help her that other people can't. But also it's like you're still looking at her as somebody to be saved and not who actually yeah. Judy. It's it's very right. interesting and well done. And then the other character is just like the bellhop from the hotel who could just like a minor character that comes in through that. So the in the first half of the play, all of the songs are sung in the context of performance. So it's like she's about to go on stage and then she sings a song and now she's singing a Judy Garland song and that's part of the song of the play. Mm -hmm. But at the in the second half of the play, her husband is furious about because she they've been in this argument, whatever, for a scene and then he dips out and then she starts singing. But it's the first time that she's singing in the hotel room to nobody like you would in an yeah. actual musical. Yeah. And it's this weird disconnect because it's like, for the audience and for me reading it, merging the realities. Oh yeah, this is her life is the acting and she could be singing to no one. She might as well she be singing have, to yeah. no one. She might as well be in her hotel room on the floor with a bottle of pills yeah. as she is standing up there in London. It was just a weird dichotomy that I thought worked well in the context yeah. of a play and in that medium. 
And this guy, the way that he came up with this play, he had done a play in 2001 called Last Song of the Nightingale, which was based on his life and situations that he had had with somebody that he knew who was an alcoholic male cruise singing performer. And he loosely based it on that, but gender swapped it and made it about Mm. this woman diva who was on the outs of her career and was struggling with substances and then made it into Judy Garland because he realized like, oh, this is like already a story that's based on somebody who's real in essence and turned it into Mm. being about her specifically. Yeah. And as opposed to some random fictional character that he's made up. And then I guess that it's probably not heavily like researched if he had already done so much work like i'm sure the two right a little bit he did a pass you know but you know it's not he didn't like start over and go like oh, i'm gonna write the judy garland play i was like he already had something he that already was had a framework for it yeah yeah and what we would call this kind of a, a play that he had had before is called a roman a clef mm. which is a literary term and it literally means story with a key oh and so what it was was it would be like the story and then you'd literally have a key like this character name Donna is actually Judy Garland and such and such is whatever. It doesn't always have to have but in the early days of writing it had a key so that you could tell like oh this is who we're alluding to in this satire (laughs) or this character is clearly the president of the United States and this character is the vice president but it's about you know. What some people might say is like we said a star is born is a film a clef, which is a film with a key, because it's directly related to these old silent film people, Colleen Moore and John McCormick, who went through that thing that then became oh, A Star is Born. Yeah. What some people also might say is that The Wizard of Oz is a Roman a clef because of Rockefeller and the oil barons. And even though Frank Baum is not directly saying that this is a relation to this, but a lot of people see a lot of symbolism and allegory yeah. to what was going on. And then it was interesting because I, that when I saw that in the play that he came, or the Broadway play, that before the movie of mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz, they were literally like, you got to talk about Teddy Roosevelt and you got to <laughs> talk about this. So it there was not it even that. God. But that's a literal, little literary term. Roman Aklef is novel with a key. And in the olden days, they literally had in the table of contents who represented who was what. Who? That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, I would have to assume that perhaps the film did took you know took the idea and, and made it a bit more for her than perhaps the play yeah. was. Um, the movie shows after gigs, she tries to find somewhere to go, um, and, and she ends up giving two you know two different um, people incredible nights. Um, you know, one was uh, the mm-hmm. gay couple that we already talked about, but the first one was, uh, uh, Mickey, mm-hmm. the, Mickey Dean, which it, is her it, last it, husband. It's just, yeah. It's yeah. the night that she met him was just because she met up with her daughter at a Hollywood party and didn't have anywhere else to go. And so they just hung out at that house mm-hmm. all night. And, and it, and the way that they end it, I was like, well, it, it, I think it's over because they, they ended on a button of they've had this human great night. They've just they've just hung out as friends, really. He's saying yeah. maybe there's more, but but it's really seems so just genuine and just not sexually charged, really just fun. Yeah. And it gets down to the end of, of the night and the last moment. He makes an illusion. I can't remember the exact words, but he hasn't, in all of that they've shown of them, he hasn't said really much of anything 
Wizard of Oz. Yeah. But they've just been people up until the last moment. And he says something about, like, if you're ever in Los Angeles, again, click your heels. Mm. And you can tell her reaction. She almost, almost sank a little. Right. So subtle, but just this, like, you you got very, very eloquently, well, I thought we we were talking. <laughs> right. But you some, were talking somebody to somebody was getting else. to know me. Yeah, you were talking to someone else, and that's unfortunate. The, the, the last little book and part that I skimmed over, he wrote a book, the real guy Mickey Deans did, that came out in '72 called "Weep No More, My Lady." And from what I could see in the reviews and kind of the, the elements that I read, it's not very well written, but it's kind of like this is a guy that knew her for a couple of years at the end and was really the last guy that was potentially close in her life, and to write this book three years after she dies is definitely just like a power move to be the person who wrote about her. Cause there's been more exhaustive documentative books that are actually covering mm. real things. And this is, you could take it as, okay, well, this is the perspective from him and this guy, and he's not really talking about much else except how he knew her and whatnot. But I was reading and there, somebody had said that there was a joke that one of her other friends was saying, Oh, I can't make it to this wedding, but I'll make it to the next one. Of course, there was not a next one, but it was implying like she had already married five people. This wasn't going to be anything. It was going to be another. This was the cycle of her life. And so it was like to take him as the authoritative person who really knows Judy Garland doesn't make a lot of sense. But the book is out there and does exist if you're interested in in, in, in something like that. But to (laughs) me, it was just like, well, whatever. He's cashing in. Cool guy. And like you said, maybe that's why they haven't really done a lot for Judy Garland. Yeah, I wonder if, and adapting if, her. if, like, the shock of her death really was like, well, maybe we ought to not touch the hot pan. Mm-hmm. Let, yeah. that one, let that one lie for a while. I don't know. I think there's probably a thousand factors that go into yeah. it. But. but, yeah, as far as, like, will this ever go away and will this legacy of, of people just seeing her as Dorothy? Probably not, which is unfortunate yeah. in many regards because even she was not trying to identify as that one thing. She feels almost as if she would be in that time capsule we launched into space. That, <laughs> you know? So, like, is there a picture of Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz? Yeah. And there's somebody, like, the cast of Wizard of Oz? That's what it feels like. It's so monumentous. Yeah, the, as, first, as uh, shuttle, the first shuttle that went to the International Space Station, they played Somewhere Over the Rainbow as their wake-up song. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so it is out in space, actually. Hey, there we go. <laughs> Yeah, it's everywhere. Man, this was cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all that. That was some fascinating stuff. And next week, we are doing Joker. Here we go. The world's going to burn down, apparently. (laughs) Good Lord. I think it's a a stunt. I think it's all a PR stunt. I don't think it's real. I don't think it's possible that they didn't think about that somebody would ask them, well, you know, there's a lot of shootings. Yeah. That's not possible. I think it's a stunt. The whole thing's a stunt. We'll see. We'll find out. This is my hot take. (laughs) We'll find out the literary basis for this cultural revolution that's about to happen. God. Um, But I'm excited. Yeah. Reach out to us on Instagram. Yeah. What are you watching? What are you reading? Let us know. At Illiterate Pod, and we will catch you all next week. See ya.